Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to the first episode of the Irish Passport Podcast of 2024. Hello, listeners. We've made it through another year and we're coming at you with a real doozy to start the new year. Though, listeners, I do have to warn you that I'm coming through the other end of a nasty flu. So if I sound a little bit rough, that's the reason. <laughs> this is like the story of this winter, I feel. like You're mm. either getting the flu or you're getting over it. We'll, give, we'll forgive you, Tim. As far as I understand it, you've fallen down quite a research rabbit hole in the last little while to bring us this particular gem. Oh my God, Naomi, it is so out of control. Uh, so to, <laughs> just before Christmas, listeners, I was chatting with Naomi very innocently and I said, oh, you know what, Naomi, I'm going to make an episode about the Cromwellian conquest. And Naomi, you might remember, you said, great idea, Tim. Off I was you like, go. yes, definitely. <laughs> Cromwellian conquest. Go for it. Right, it sounds good, I've never heard right? that better idea in my life. Yeah. And off I went. But these turned out to be very Hallison days, Naomi, because (laughs) within one day into the research, I realized I was going to have to explain the background to that conquest. And then I realized, oh, no, hold on. You can't really explain that without explaining the the context to that. And then I'm going to have to talk about the 1641 rebellion. And I can't (laughs) explain that without talking about the Nine Years' War. And basically, long story short, I am neck deep in a series of episodes about Ireland in the early modern period. Good. You know what? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Also, part of you, part of you must have suspected that this is the way it would go since it tends to. It's it's not the first time. Let's face it. No, it isn't. So part of me did kind of know. I didn't know I would get this into it, but here we are. So in the next few episodes, listeners, I want to lay out the events between the English Reformation in 1534 and the Cromwellian invasion of 1649-1653. That might sound a bit technical, but I'll break it all down for you because this is a really fascinating, fascinating period. It's actually... It's hard to get stuck into this period, even though we reference it all the time on the podcast, because it's just so action-packed. Like, there's just so (laughs) much going on here. One big dramatic event after the other. All these larger-than-life characters. A lot of violence. And it's so, so important for understanding the history uh, of Ireland. So I think, especially for a lot of our long-time listeners, uh, these episodes might fill in some quite important gaps between the periods that we've already looked at. Great. And frankly, also for me as well. Um, so just to recap, this period we're talking about, it's 1534 to 1653. Um, this is mm. a period where the island of Ireland transforms completely, right? Like at the beginning mm. of this period, Ireland was still almost entirely Gaelic. So the country was ruled over by a network of Gaelic clans who carried on a pretty ancient way of life with a uniquely legal and political system that had dominated the island for centuries. And 100 years later, Ireland was completely unrecognisable. Much of the island was a scorched wasteland, frankly. The population had been decimated. Practically all of the land had been seized by colonial settlers. And that ancient Gaelic civil and political structure had been abolished and replaced by a colonial regime of near total civil and religious subjugation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're dealing with a really, really huge transformation here. And it's key in the history of Ireland's colonisation. Mm. Uh, it, th- what we're looking at is, in effect, the period in which England and later Britain finally succeeded in conquering Ireland. Mm. And the process was so dramatic. 
and violent that parts of it are, are almost unbelievable. Um, it's also a story of incredible resistance. We have these incredible uh, up, uprisings, you know, rising up from the ashes again and again and again. So I've decided to call these few episodes Conquest, right? To group them under this right. title of Conquest. Yeah. Because we're going to be covering this kind of succession of earth-shattering events in Irish history that lead kind of unassailably to the occupation of the island of Ireland entirely. Okay, I'm dreading and looking forward to getting into this. Okay, so first I want to talk about the fact that you've called this episode Making Ireland English, which is so interesting because this is one of the strategies that marks out the colonisation of Ireland from start to finish. So the objective was literally to replace Irish culture and traditions with English culture and traditions. And it's there from the beginning of this history. And it's not just because colonists thought English culture was superior, though they definitely did. It was also because the particular circumstances of pre-colonial Ireland meant that wiping out Gaelic society was pretty much the only way that the English were ever going to establish their authority on the island. And that had a huge influence on how later colonial ventures elsewhere were conceived. Yeah, it has this massive, massive influence, like just in case you're wondering, listeners, by the way, we're deliberately saying English here rather than British, because for most of this period, England and Scotland were still completely independent kingdoms. Mm. And uh, this occupation of Ireland during this time was mainly an English project um, that changes later on. But we'll come to that in future episodes. Um, and for sure, yeah, Ireland does offer this extremely early example of the kind of colonial strategies that would be deployed elsewhere across the British Empire in later years and in later centuries. Loads of historians have identified Ireland as a kind of laboratory for British colonialism, mm. because in these early years, we can see English colonial administrators, you know, trying out loads of different oddball projects for controlling the population, <laughs> some of which don't work at all, some of which backfire, but some of which work really well. And the ones that work really well, they use again elsewhere. Mm. So what's fascinating about this attempt to make Ireland English at this point is that that attempt isn't very refined yet. You know, that the project isn't very refined. You can see its weak points. And then you can see the colonists coming up with new and better strategies to overcome those weak points. So it's, it's kind of, you're seeing in real time the, the creation of this incredibly enduring mode of colonization in Ireland mm. in the, in the 17th century. Famously, of course, Tim, the first attempt to make Ireland English happened all the way back in the 12th century, right? With the arrival of mm. the Normans. Mm. Yeah, right. So, so when we say early example, listeners, we mean like early example. Um, yeah. So this is really back at a time when even England wasn't particularly English yet. So, mm. you know, uh, the, but we already have this idea of cultural usurpation, let's say. So the Normans had only conquered Britain about a century before they arrived in Ireland. Mm. And now they were coming to Ireland in the 12th century to seize land from the Gaelic natives. And the idea here was to claim all the land in Ireland and turn the island into a vassal state that would be loyal to the crown in Westminster, where their base was. Right. So at this stage, one of the primary strategies was to introduce uh, feudalism to Ireland. So right from the get go, this involves dismantling the native Gaelic social structure, which we'll look at more closely in a minute. So the Normans seized land from Gaelic clans in Ireland and they transformed that land into feudal lordships. This means the land can be inducted into the political and economic systems of Norman England. And it also means that it can come under the authority of English law. Yeah, exactly. So we're making Ireland English here in the way of making Ireland conform to English law, English economy, things like mm. that, right? And 
even though this happened all the way back in the 12th century, that original Norman invasion had these huge consequences. Most importantly, from that point on, Westminster thought about Ireland as belonging to the English crown. So they proclaim it a lordship and they just consider it really their rightful territory now. And they don't really let go of that idea for the next millennium, basically. Right. Okay. So, and this is like theoretical on their part, of course, right? Because they, mm. they actually only occupied a tiny part of the island. I, I think at this point, weren't the English considering that they also owned France and stuff as well, although they probably just held Calais? Yeah, honestly, I think they probably had a bigger, <laughs> bigger claim to France in terms of like <laughs> actual political legacy and population settlers. But uh, yeah, if, if you say it, it's true. I think that's where the Normans are coming from in, in this, okay. in this period. Another consequence is that the Normans leave this very significant population of descendants on the island who become known, confusingly, we know, as the Old English. So Right, we've come across those characters before. <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely have, loads of times. Old English equals descendants of original Norman settlers, keep that in your mind. We have mm. talked about them loads on the podcast, uh, but in the context of this period, these guys are a really fascinating group, and they actually end up becoming key players in resisting conquest later on. So we need to keep an eye on them uh, going forward. Okay, got it. Even centuries and centuries after that original Norman invasion, these old English continued to exist as a distinct ethnic and cultural group on the island. And that's partly because of what you just mentioned, Naomi. In the long term, they only ever managed to secure a few isolated enclaves on the island. They stayed there and they created these little islands of Norman influence in Ireland. Famously, the Pale, which brings, you know, the expression beyond the Pale, um, the mm. Pale is fairly substantial territory around Dublin. For centuries, this was the only like solid area of English control in Ireland. And by the way, Pale, it means a wall or a fence, and it's related to the word palisade. And that's because the whole uh, area was surrounded by ditches, ramparts and defences. It was like a physical boundary. And that was to fend off against the native Gaelic Irish clans outside his boundaries, which weren't very far away, like they would come in raiding from Wicklow and so on. It would also remain the power centre for English authority on the island of Ireland for the next 800 years. And because of that, it had, to some extent, still has a very powerful symbolic significance. And yes, of course, it come, we hear it in that phrase beyond the pale, because for settlers, this area represented civilization, and everything outside the walls was wild and savage, and by consequence, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. So from this base in the pale, the original Normans had sent out warlords to build castles and establish walled towns and cities all around the island. And that's where we get really most of these picturesque castles that the ruins of castles anyway, that scattered the Irish countryside today. You'll see them mm. everywhere. And if you see one of those castles, you probably are seeing what's left of an old English lordship in that area. And some of these lordships were very small. Some of them were absolutely huge, like the size of counties. Uh, so you end up with some really powerful old English dynasties in Ireland, like the Desmonds or the Fitzgeralds, who have a lot more land and power than lots of their contemporaries would have had in England at the same time. However... If we come up to our period then, if we come up to the 16th century, the vast majority of those lordships had pretty much collapsed. They had Mm. been absorbed back into Gaelic Ireland. So English control was confined almost entirely really to the Pale, as well as some lordships, especially in Munster, and a few walled cities that were just dotted around the place. So there were a few reasons why the old English never managed to control Ireland, why the project kind of failed. But one of them was the phenomenon of Hiberniorus Hibernus Ipsis, or 
becoming more Irish than the Irish themselves. So basically, the old English settlers kept assimilating into the local Gaelic population. They went native. Yeah, absolutely. And we can easily see how this happens because at this point, if you lived inside the Pale or inside one of those walled cities, like let's say Athlone or Drogheda, it was basically like being in a weird little enclave of England. Like people wore English clothes, they followed English laws. You would see Gaelic Irish people coming and selling you goods or whatever, but you and your community were still organized according to an English social model. Mm-hmm. But if you left those urban zones to set up a lordship, let's say out in Clare or Leitrim or somewhere more remote, you would be immediately surrounded by Gaelic society, almost exclusively, and you would have to work within the parameters of that society if you wanted to get anything done. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that you would start to change the way that you live fairly quickly. Not to mention, if you were born in one of these more remote places, you would have been surrounded by Gaelic culture and customs all your life. So if you were like a second generation Old English, the English traditions of the Pale might actually seem fairly strange to you. So what we get then are all these children and grandchildren of the original Norman settlers who inherit feudal lordships. and They live in the family castle and everything, but they're speaking Irish. They're wearing Irish clothes and pretty soon they're marrying into local Gaelic dynasties and their lordships are being absorbed back into local hands. Yeah, so that's the situation as it stood by the 16th century. Most of Ireland was once again under Gaelic control. Got it. So just to get this straight, even though they've gone a bit native, at this stage, the Old English are loyal to the crown. Yeah, for the most part anyway. And this is one major aspect that keeps them separate from the Gaelic Irish. So Old English loyalty to Westminster is strongest inside the Pale, because the Pale is constantly communicating directly with England. And the Pale is also where Dublin Castle is located, which is the nucleus of English authority on the island. Outside the Pale, the Old English would still mostly have been loyal to the crown, but they're not particularly beholden to the crown, you know, in practical terms, because they're so remote from the Pale and even more remote from, from England itself that Westminster can't really enforce rules on them in any real way. So a lot of these lordships are effectively autonomous. They're doing whatever the hell they want out there. It's like the Wild West. No one can really stop them. Nobody really minds. So yeah, they're loyal to England, but whatever that means. Okay, so we've we've got variety. Some of the old English, especially Mm. in the Pale, still very Anglicised. And then on the other hand, some, especially further out, have become completely Gaelicised. And I suppose it's fair to say that most of them maybe fell somewhere ambiguously in between. Absolutely. They're, they're not Irish in the same way as the Gaelic Irish are, but they're not English in the same way as the English people who live in England are. Like, it's a really mm-hmm. complex identity. And we don't have that much time to go into it here, but we might get into it more in our half-pint debrief. Oh, yeah. Good idea. A, a reminder, listeners, that is the extra content debrief episodes that we make for our supporters over on Patreon, where we get into more detail about the topics we've discussed on the main show and stuff that we came across in our research. So if you want to tune into that and gain access to well over 100 um, extra bonus episodes, you can sign up to support the show over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. Okay, plug over. Now, Tim, Mm -hmm. let's look at the majority Gaelic population. So living cheek by jowl alongside these funny old English lordships, there's this incredibly ancient culture. As I understand it, we can basically trace Gaelic culture all the way back basically into prehistory. Because Ireland had been relatively untouched by the Romans, and because it had escaped invasion from the Germanic hordes like the Anglo-Saxons, it was a pretty unique place. The people spoke Irish, 
which is one of the oldest written languages on the continent of Europe, of course. And they organised their society along the lines of a complex legal system known as the Brehan Laws. Yeah, I mean, the Gaelic Irish were travelling around and trading with the European neighbours just like any other European people. But because of the relative isolation on on this island in the middle of the Atlantic, that ancient society was really remarkably preserved right into the 16th and 17th centuries. So just to give you a visual, Naomi, of what we're dealing with, what a 16th century Gael might have looked like, I'm going to send you a drawing of the Gaelic Irish from a German manuscript. This was created around 1547. And listeners, we will put a link to this and the other images we discuss up on Patreon, by the way. So if you want to go and look at them, you can find them over there. So I'm sending this to you now, Naomi. Can you describe what you see? Okay, interesting. Oh, um, okay. So there's a guy, he's wearing like robes with a plunging mm-hmm. v-neck. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it's tied around his waist kind of. And he's got like... um a metal armoured arm which is holding a sword and in his other hand he has a spear and he's about to spear a bagpiper. Right. Now, uh, and they're to barefoot. be clear, I don't think this man is actually trying to spear his friend over here. <laughs> That's just with the way they're I arranged on the page. He does look like he's about <laughs> to stab him in the back though. It never occurred to me until you said it, but it does absolutely <laughs> look like this is an assassination like in flagrante. <laughs> <laughs> but but just yeah. Like coming for the musician. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I must stress here that this is created by some German artist somewhere, and it's probably not based on, I mean, almost certainly not based on real life, but this probably would have been based on descriptions that were passed uh-huh. around in Europe about the different habits of different peoples. And we can see a few things that come up again and again in the representations of the Gaelic-Irish. One of them is these sleeves. I don't know if you noticed this. Yeah, huge balloon sleeves. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering about that. Amazing sleeves, like these huge baggy, baggy sleeves that drag, drag down um, a good, you know, like, I don't know, half a meter or so. Um, this was like a thing. So if you see the Gaelic Irish represented in woodcuts or whatever, they almost always, you can tell, it's like symbolically they're set apart by these sleeves. Okay. Another thing they almost always have are these um, bagpipes or illin pipes. It's probably illin pipes, though it might be bagpipes. I mean, bagpipes are more of a Scottish thing, as far as I understand. And there's an Irish mm-hmm. version that was illin pipes, which you, you don't blow into with your mouth, but you 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 use your elbow to to get the the air through. Another thing is what is interesting here. I think is that armored arm. So this guy has one armored arm. So we can see that you know yeah. they have some kind of high tech uh, metal technology going on here. It's you know they're very yeah. aware of all this. But they're also barefoot and they're not uh, fully armoured, which is what you would see a lot of warriors like at this point. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. So keep that in mind. Now, I'm going to move you on to another picture. Here's another one. It should be coming your way right now. This is two sets of images. And this comes from a 1610 map of Ireland by an Englishman, an English cartographer called John Speed. So take a look at these. Okay, the wild Irish man and the wild Irish women. Okay, so the woman actually has like a quite a impressive, is it fur? Anyway, looking mm-hmm. fluffy, huge blanket all over her. And then the, the wild Irish man has a herringbone patterned woven <laughs> affair over his shoulders, which looks like you could buy it in like Donegal Tweed. And then there's the civil Irish woman and the civil Irish man. The civil Irish man has a hat and stuff. And so, yeah, so does the the civil Irish woman. It's interesting where we've got two types here. So are we talking like pale and non-pale types or something like that? 
Right, yeah, exactly. So these are basically more or less Old English and Gaelic people I that see. we're looking at here. But the words they're using tell us everything, right? The civil Irish woman and the wild Irish woman, the civil Irish man, the wild Irish man. And yes, actually that hat business is really significant because okay. um, for most of history, people wore hats all the time. We're, we're very unusual in the 20th and 21st centuries for not wearing hats all the time. Okay. So like not wearing a hat for most of, let's say in the 19th or 18th century, it was a bit like not wearing your t-shirt or something. Like, <laughs> you know, you weren't naked, but it was really inappropriate. Like you were really making yourself comfortable if you took your hat off, you know? <laughs> so the fact that these people aren't wearing hats is a symbol of their kind of, that, that they're not civil, I suppose. It's a symbol of the lack of civilization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have this long hair um, and we have these mantles, these these famous mantles that they're wearing, these these coats. Also, basically, what we're seeing in this image, the civil Irish people are, are dressed like English people. Like they're wearing the same mm. clothes as English people would have worn at this time. And the wild okay. Irish people are wearing clothes that would have been completely alien to anyone in England. So it's just such okay. a dramatic uh, contrast that we're seeing there. Now, one of the distinct aspects of Gaelic Ireland was its settlement patterns, which explains a lot about this. Uh, unlike pretty much anywhere in Western Europe, the Gaelic Irish didn't really live in towns or in villages or in cities. Mm-hmm. So don't get me wrong, there were towns, there were cities, and many of them were established by the Vikings hundreds of years before. They'd been there in, since before the Normans even, but they mm. were relatively few and far between in Ireland. Okay, that's interesting. So this whole not having cities thing isn't just a recent thing. Mm. Of course, there was also a network of monastic settlements on the island. Very interesting. These these functioned like small cities. They would have had, you know, all the different contributing parts and their own network and everything like that. Some of them eventually developed into secular urban centers, like, for example, Kildare, Armagh. But like you say, Tim, the traces that we see of Gaelic Ireland on the landscape, they aren't streetscapes or marketplaces, but rather these circular structures called raths, which often have high stone walls around them. And inside these structures, you could build more temporary wooden buildings that you could like retreat to in times of war or use to protect goods or animals. Um, so tell me, Tim, those raths that are really common in the Irish countryside, would they still have been in use in the 16th century? Yeah, it definitely seems so. Um, it's worth yeah. noting as well that the Gaelic Irish had also absorbed a lot of structural technology from the Normans. So okay. by this stage, by the 16th century, they were also building tower houses, like just like the Normans were, and stone fortresses, fairly similar to what the Old English had been yeah. doing when they first took control. Uh, but despite all this, permanent urban settlements were not the main focus of power in Gaelic Ireland. Instead, mm. what you get are these extremely dynamic population centres, so let's say a lot of people start settling around a castle or one of these rats or a defensive fort, but then they'll move to a new location later on. Hmm. I'm just realizing as well how many Irish place names start with wrath. It's really common. Mm, um, sure. We could all think of like 10. All right. So they are meeting up in like groups, but mm-hmm. not in this permanent way like cities. Yeah, right. And, and that's really to do with the way that land was inherited. Mm. So the Gaelic Irish didn't use a system of direct linear inheritance or primogeniture like you might have found in Britain or most Mm -hmm. of feudal Europe. Instead, there was a kind of electoral system in place. So it was very possible that for whatever reason, somebody living quite far away was going to take over the land 
and maybe they live a hundred miles away, and mm. that's where the power and influence of the whole territory is going to go now. So anyone important might go there too. So it's it's, it's a very dynamic kind of power <laughs> base that's that's going on. It's kind of electoral system. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. Um, mm. But wait, this is like a system of clans, right? It's to do with family links. Yes, it uh, it is in a way. Yeah, like okay. they would have used the word fina. Uh, which means tribe or kin group. And that's, okay. of course, where we get the, the Finna in Fine Gael. Yeah, Fine Gael is literally like tribe of the Gales. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which flatters them way too much. It's too cool of a name for that party, honestly. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. They got, they got a good one there. Um, so the members of an individual Finna thought about themselves as, yes, as descended from a single founder in, in that sense. So, um, I mean, it's not that they're a family. It's a bit like the Romans thought about themselves as descended from Romulus and Remus, right? So okay. there's a kind of, there's a, a unifying person in their past, a common ancestor. I see. Uh, so that's why members of an individual Finna will t- all take the same name. And they'll pass that name on then through the male lines. And all of that was very strictly monitored by professional genealogists who documented all the different branches of the specific finna that they belong to, Mm -hmm. who is related to whom, etc. And each finna was controlled by a leader with the title of Taoiseach. Taoiseach just means chief, of course. And once again, that's where we get the modern word for the chief minister of state in the Republic. Right. And so that, I suppose, is why you'll have particular names associated with particular territories. So you'll get a lot of O'Briens in County Clare, for example. Um, pretty much all the O'Learys come from like West Cork and Kerry. Um, mm. A lot of O'Donnells in Donegal, for example, that was their territorial clan territory. Um, they weren't necessarily very closely related or even related at all, but they all would have claimed descent from a mythical O'Brien or O'Leary or O'Donnell in the ancient past. Exactly, yeah. Now, so you, you, you commented on the electoral system that I mentioned earlier, yes. which is super interesting because okay. here's how it works. Okay. So while the Taoiseach of your Finna was still alive, or I might, I might just use the word clan here actually, because even though that's not the word they use, that's what you'll see in history books most of the time. So okay. while the Taoiseach of your clan was still alive, the clan members would elect like a vice president for the Taoiseach. And that vice president was called the Tonashta, who was I'm visualizing the Michael Martin here. I can't I it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to read this without literally imagining members of the modern Irish government doing this. <laughs> In their <laughs> but, um, yes. So this like vice Tishuk was called the Tonashta, who was the Tishuk's second in command. And that meant that if the Tishuk died, the office of chief would go directly to the Tonashta. Mm-hmm. And that would also mean that there wouldn't be any fighting about who was next in the line of succession. So it very much is like a vice president in the way okay. that it works, kind of. Yeah. And also it is this way of stopping succession disputes by basically you name your successor electorally uh, before you're even dead. It's organized, dare we say, civilized. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is fairly civilized, isn't it? But yeah. I mean, in theory, anyway, like in practice, there was a lot of skullduggery. You constantly have people assassinating each other so that they can get the gig of Tanishta, things like that. So, okay. you know, it's a hit and miss, hit and miss. Not that different from today, so. Uh, so, as I mentioned, this meant that land ownership wasn't as simple as one person owning the land and passing it down to one direct heir. That's just not mm-hmm. how it worked. Instead, effectively, the land kind of belongs to the whole clan because... And the clan might be tens and tens of thousands of people mm. because it was the clan who got to elect the next Thornista. So 
you know, they decide who's going to be their ruler. So it kind of does belong to everyone who gets a voice in that decision. Okay, I guess it kind of makes sense because we're talking about like a, a society where wealth was in cows, right? And the thing is with cattle and stuff is you need to herd them around from like pasture to grazing land to the place where they have their calves to where the calves fatten and stuff. So you actually need a lot of land for that. And it doesn't necessarily need to just belong to one person. Um, very typical all around the world um, as a mm-hmm. system until like modern times. Um, but I think, Tim, like all of this was like super regulated. Like this is another feature mm-hmm. of Gaelic Ireland that it was actually sort of like really obsessed with rules. Like you have all these codexes, which are rules that don't even make sense to us anymore. Like I, I looked at, um, there was one um, book that was recently circulating like a few pages of it online and it was like specifying different legal grades of cat. So it was like the best cat <laughs> is the cat who purrs, but also catches mice. And this cat we set down here has a value of X. And it's like, then, you know, the next other cat is the, just the hunter cat. Like it was all the, all the grades of cat and each sort of cat had a name. Anyway, <laughs> this was like rather bureaucratic. Um, so, um, I think there was like quite an extensive apparatus, right? Of like civil servants, like learned people, lawyers and stuff, mm. professionals who, who made the whole system work. Yeah, it, it is like incredibly legalistic and bureaucratic, yeah. like you say, when you start to look at it. Um, so even though uh, this is important, actually, because even though you have all these different clans in Ireland kind of functioning uh, autonomously within themselves, and they're often going to war with each other, mm. all of them are following the same legal code. It's called the Brehan Law. And this was enforced like you say, by this entire cast of professional lawyers. So mm. it meant that all of the clans were respecting the same rules of war, for instance, etc. Now, listen, we're going through all this for a few reasons. Firstly, this is, if you think about it, an impossible situation for English colonists. <laughs> like, how on earth are they supposed to take control of Ireland when its population is structured around this completely alien political system that doesn't even recognize ideas like direct air, land transmission, yeah. you know, things like that, right? Yeah, they had totally different concepts of family. Like, I know that, mm. like, Breton laws have loads more provision for different sorts of families, which aren't necessarily, like, direct offspring. Like, people like foster mm. children and stuff. There's, like, yeah. loads more room for that in the Breton law system. So it's really... um impossible to transplant a hereditary feudal lordship um in which has you know primogeniture and stuff where the you know the 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 firstborn son is going to inherit everything it's very ill fit you know for these Mm. people who are going around sharing common land electing their leader and all this stuff it's just it fits very badly like it would be like proposing an absolute monarchy to people who were used to an electoral republican system now it'd be like yeah. no why would we do that like that doesn't make any <laughs> doesn't make any sense um yeah so uh, so there were no real inroads uh, here for the english to start influencing the system without confronting it violently so that's a problem right you know they can't just okay. insidiously worm their way in here through influence um, secondly, another big problem here that we've mentioned is that without major permanent urban centers, it's really difficult to conquer somewhere. Mm. Like in most of Europe, you can simply take military control of a capital city or a main town or whatever. And hey, presto, you've got instant control over the whole region. But you couldn't do that here. Like how mm. exactly were, were you supposed to affirm authority in Ireland when you couldn't control any symbolic center of power, you know? Yeah. They, you don't have 
your handle on like the keys to the system by owning the capital in the same way that you might do now. And of course, like if the whole land belongs to the whole finna or whole clan, you can't even capture a landowner and claim their territory because there's going to be like a thousand other people out there who also technically own it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this like profoundly affects England's military tactics in Ireland because they're used to taking over the main urban centre. I mean, that's how Mm. they generally worked before this. Um, But not only could they not do that and take control of the land that way, the countryside itself in Ireland was a kind of battlefield. So Mm. this was another big difference in the Gaelic and the English ways of doing things. Instead of walled cities, instead of big fortresses, um, the Gaelic-Irish often used the land as their instrument of offence or defence. Okay. So they used the land itself as an instrument of war, basically. The land was their castle, let's let's put it Mm. that way. So they did this by modifying whole sections of the landscape. So they might build defensive walls or ditches along like strategic topographic areas, or Hmm. they might make use of mountain passes or strategic bridges where they could ambush an invading enemy. Hmm. Something that they did, um, for instance, to give you a more visual account, something that they often did was to tie trees together. So like low growing kind of bendy trees in an area, you would tie the trees all together in a mesh so you couldn't even see that it was a wall until you got really close to it, but you could trap people in there by the, you know, the trees had been sewn together, things like that. Um, you know, they could choose these specific locations then, um, that allowed them to disappear back into the landscape almost instantaneously. So this was their method of warfare. Very different. It was very interesting. It's like booby trapping mm. the whole country, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, most especially, uh, this method of war- warfare involved a very intimate knowledge of the landscape, which invading colonists, including the old English, by the way, didn't have. You know, you really had to live in the mountains, in the forest to really know what was what. It was also an extremely effective um, method against feudal style armies, because if you're ambushing an invader in a steep mountain pass, they're all weighed down with horses and heavy armor. Mm. They can't follow you. So not only do the English not have any strategic towns or cities to take over, but this apparently empty landscape around them is completely deadly. And mm. there's this feeling that the Gaelic Irish are all around them all the time, watching them from the forests and the mountains, and that the, that the Gaelic Irish can attack them and they can't follow. You know, they're, if they're, they can run away. They're not wearing um, heavy armor. They're much more, they're much lighter and they can just disappear again. And there's no real dealing with them in this situation. I just love this opportunity to again mention the wood kerns. Remember the wood kerns uh, <laughs> from yes, our episode that we did about um, Ireland's lost forests last year. So in that episode, mm. we we heard some firsthand accounts from all these English adventurers who were terrified of the forests because they knew that the wild Irish were like lurking in there somewhere watching them. It's kind of an amazing scenario. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I have to say, I don't know if you caught wind of that TikTok uh, trend of asking people if, how, much, how much they think of the Roman Empire. <laughs> I think of yes. the woodcurrents at least once a day <laughs> since we made that episode, Naomi. <laughs> the woodcurrents are the wood our Roman Empire. I think <laughs> it's not are. infrequently, I have to confess. <laughs> a lot of things remind me of the woodcurrents, uh, including this, indeed. Right, so listen, this brings us to Ulster, okay? Yes. Like, this is a huge subject here. The northern province of Ulster, one of the most powerful Gaelic areas on the island of Ireland. 
Right, of course, I was wondering about this because that's one of the things that's said all the time in historical accounts of the period is that Ulster was the like the most quote-unquote Gaelic part of Gaelic Ireland. So what exactly does that mean? Yeah, okay. So the province of Ulster was incredibly well situated in terms of this traditional landscape defence system. Huge sections of Ulster's southern border were pretty much impassable for feudal-style armies. Uh, So if you think about it, if you have a map of Ulster in front of you, Loch Urn forms this huge natural barrier all along the border of Fermanagh, so the southern border Mm -hmm. of Ulster. And then there was this extensive bogland all along along the border of Monaghan. And in between those lakes and that bogland, there was dense, 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 dense forest that hadn't been felled yet. So if you were trying to enter Ulster in the 16th century with heavy cavalry or artillery or a big army, you were basically restricted to two main exit and entry points for the whole province on land, anyway. Mm. So one was in Sligo on the west coast and one was around Newry on the east. I see. So as long as the local clans defended those two entry points, they could defend like the whole of Ulster from invasion. Yeah, yeah. And because of this, Ulster had remained practically untouched by English incursions since the very first Norman landings. Not even Mm. the Old English had ever managed to make any inroads in Ulster. So it explains why the people living there would be like totally or extremely un-Anglicised. Yeah, yeah. Like they would have thought of the people further south as a lot more uh, like influenced by Norman ways than they were. Like Plus to change. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they they actually had a reputation among the other Gaelic clans as like, oh wow, these guys are super Gaelic. Like <laughs> they're the real deal. So even even I among see. other Gaelic people, the Ulster Ulstermen were were the ones. They were like the hardcore Gaels. Yeah. So now, if we keep this Gaelic stronghold of Ulster in our mind, we can now move on to the big event that's going to mark the beginning of this period, and that is the Protestant Reformation. Right. Okay, so let's do it. We are, of course, talking about the massive religious split that happened in Europe at the beginning of the 16th century between the Catholic Church and various countries around the continent that adopted new Protestant doctrines. England famously was one of those countries. Yes, in 1534, the English monarch Henry VIII split with the Catholic Church and declared himself head of a new English state religion, the Protestant Church of England. This was signed into law through an act of parliament called the Act of Supremacy, and basically everyone in England woke up the next day and, by law, the king was the head of the church in England, like it or lump it. Remains so today. Remains so today, indeed. But when the old English lords in Ireland found out about what had just happened, they actually Mm. went kind of berserk. They launched a whole rebellion about it. Like, we don't have time to go into it here, but in short, pretty much none of the old English converted to Protestantism at all. Okay. Okay, so the old English in Ireland, they stay Catholic. They stay Catholic. The the researcher Henry A. Jeffries wrote an article called uh, Why Did the Protestant Reformation Fail in Ireland? And he mentions some amazing figures on this. Mm. So according to contemporary commentators, the population of Protestants in Ireland throughout the entire 16th century was somewhere between 40 and 120 people. That's it. (laughs) it. Okay, so you can fit them all on a bus. 
you could fit them all in the bus. This is decades and decades and decades after the Reformation had taken hold in in England, okay. just to put that in perspective. More than 60 years after the Reformation, only 22 Irish-born householders in Dublin attended a Protestant church service. Is another one of those figures. It's a really astounding figure. And then, of yeah. course, there's the Gaelic-Irish. And I suppose, I mean, were they tuned in? Were they even paying attention to all of this? Well, absolutely not. Like, they didn't care about any of this. And this okay. is one reason why the Protestant Reformation makes the whole situation in Ireland so much more urgent for Westminster. Because when it came to the old English, who are refusing to convert, etc., Henry VIII can go to the Pale and say, Ireland's Protestant now, and if you resist, I'm going to punish you. You're traitors, mm-hmm. I'm sending you to the Tower of London, I'm going to have your head chopped off, whatever needs to be done to get you to obey him. But Henry VIII can shout all he wants outside the walls of the Pale, and just nobody's listening. Like, the vast mm-hmm. majority of the population are just completely ignoring him and his decrees, because that's, you know, that, this isn't even their legal system. They're following a completely different system, the Brehan laws, that have nothing to do with him. And does this change the dynamic between the Gaelic-Irish and the Old English? Because now you have two groups that are predominantly Catholic that puts, gives them something in common in opposition to Protestant England. Yeah, it definitely does change the dynamic. Not quite yet, Mm -hmm. but keep your eye on this. The reason it doesn't Mm -hmm. change the dynamic so much at this stage is because we're at an early stage of the Reformation. It's still kind of precarious. There were still loads of Mm -hmm. Catholics in the English royal line. So it was completely possible that Henry VIII would just die off. This would all blow over, you know, everything would go back to normal. So for the time being, the old English are still loyal to the English monarch, but... They're not on board with his state religion, which is a really weird situation to be in. It's a weird situation. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely weird. So on the other hand, Protestant England is now stuck with this huge Catholic lordship floating beside it. And to Mm. put this in perspective, uh, back then the population of Ireland was really sizable compared to England. Uh, So in 1550, there were around 4 million people in England and about 1.5 million people in Ireland. So having that many Catholics beside you isn't great from their point of view. Yes. Yeah. In the politics of Europe as well, you know, it was always seen as Mm. this this security threat at a time when, you know, the English crown is constantly managing these dynamics between like the the emperor and like, you know, the the pope in Rome and these different like political forces who are Catholic mm-hmm. and not pleased that they're like deviating from the uh, like that dominant religion. Um, so the Catholic population there in Ireland, that's 1.5 million Catholics just hanging out in your backyard even though you declared the whole place to be Protestant, like it's kind of bad PR. Yeah, for, yeah, it, it's definitely bad PR in the in the fact that it exposed the lordship, quote unquote, of Ireland as like fiction, which it basically was anyway. Um, but it also posed a major security threat, like you said. In the event mm. of war, you have 1.5 million Catholics who could team up with other Catholics on the continent at any point to invade you, right, if you were um, right. a Protestant in England. So from that point of view, something had to be done to control the Gaelic clans, finally. Outside the pale, it was time to stop, you know, beating around the bush here. This was a matter of national emergency for England. So Henry knew that it was logistically impossible to violently force the entirety of Gaelic Ireland to conform with English law. So instead, what he comes up with is a new set of nonviolent strategies, again, to make the Gaelic Irish English. 
So here, like I said at the very beginning of the episode, is the impetus to take this cultural route. When you can't do it through physical force, you do it through cultural manipulation. And, you know, this, mm-hmm. like I said, is going to become incredibly influential. So what Henry does is quite clever, actually. He approaches the most powerful Tishi around the island and he mm-hmm. makes them an offer. He says, hi, guys, uh, you're really <laughs> big and powerful in your own territory, but didn't you know that there's this whole dimension of Ireland, these old English territories, where you have no influence at all? So here's a deal. How would you like to keep all of your land and also have the opportunity to gain power in those old English territories, particularly in the Pale? Mm. All you have to do is renounce your Gaelic title, renounce all your land to the English crown, and in return, we will give you a new English title and you'll get to sit in the House of Lords in Dublin, and then we'll give you all your land back. But this time, it'll be hereditary. Uh, you know, you won't be going around voting in a new clan member, a new Taoiseach. Instead, it will stay in your direct family line forever. Um, so this was the deal. It was called um, surrender and regrant this system. Wow. Okay, so we've got, like, playing on self-interest here. We've got divide exactly. and rule. Um, it's quite clever, really. On the face of it, the Gaelic clans are being offered more power. They get to keep their land and influence, but also um, some influence over the old English territories. But of course, mm. what it's doing is it's co-opting these powerful leaders into the English system. So I guess they're going to have to follow English law now, which makes it them more easy to control. Exactly. So that's that's definitely the plan. And you exactly yeah. like you say, it's completely playing on self-interest. You get to keep your clan lands in your family forever suddenly. And you also mm. get to like control what happens in Dublin, which must have been very exciting, you know, for people. Mm. Uh, so a lot of Gaelic Tishi agree to this. Uh, the O'Briens, mm. who were descended from Brian Baru, by the way, that's a good example of these like mythical founders, like the Brian Baru's descendants become the O'Briens. Right. They give up their title no longer the O'Briens, and they become the Earls of Thomond. Uh, the O'Donnells mm. become the Earls of Tyrconnell. Okay. But the strategy doesn't really go to plan, because <laughs> what a lot of these leaders do is they go and get their English titles, they go and claim their power in the House of Lords in Dublin, and whatever, mm-hmm. and then they just go back home to their clan territories, and they keep up their Irish titles, because nobody there cares about English law. So they <laughs> kind of have <laughs> okay. their cake and eat it too. Okay, so they've got like a foot in both systems. Um, mm. they're, they're leaders of Ireland now, not according to one, but according to two, two different legal systems. Yeah, exactly. Now, also remember that their Gaelic titles and their English titles are inherited in totally different ways. So things mm. get very messy very quickly with this surrender and regrant system. Okay, right. So listeners, you got to stay with me because this is where it gets full on Game of Thrones. Naomi, mm. I want to talk to you about the O'Neills. Yes. These guys, the O'Neills, were huge players in the Gaelic clan system. They controlled this massive ancestral kingdom in Ulster called Chiroan, which covered modern-day Tyrone, as well as huge mm-hmm. sections of Derry and Armagh and Donegal. And this land had belonged to the O'Neill clan for literally more than a millennium at this point, um, possibly more than that. So to put that in perspective... The O'Neills had been ruling Tyrone for 500 years longer than the kingdoms of England or Scotland even existed, right? So, I mean, yeah. you know, the idea of England or Scotland were an apple, were an apple in people's eye when these guys were already 500 <laughs> years into their reign. Uh, I don't know if you remember Niall of the Nine Hostages who kidnapped St. Patrick 
back in the fifth century. Yeah, yes, a familiar name. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's them. Same family, right? <laughs> Their symbol was the red hand of Ulster. Like they were the ones who kind of made that a thing. And uh -huh. the O'Neills were also one of the clans who agreed to Henry VIII's surrender and regrant process. So in the 1540s, they became the Earls of Tyrone. Like so many clans, though, the Tishi of the O'Neills also kept up their original Gaelic title. So the, the title of a Taoiseach is the, so it's the O'Neill. If you're the Taoiseach of a clan, you are the family name. So the, the Taoiseach right. would have been the O'Neill. The, the O'Neill still existed, even though they had taken on this new title. So like if you were the head, if you were the chief McInerney, you'd be the McInerney. And I would be like the O'Leary. Yeah. You would be the O'Leary. Exactly. Now, because the O'Neill's land was so big and so important, there were endless quarrels about succession to both these English and Gaelic titles. People were getting mm. murdered, people were getting tortured, assassinated, violent mess, very, very Game God. of Thrones. Now, while this fighting is going on, and it's really, really bloody, the English mm. get their hands on a little boy who is in the line of succession to become the Earl of Tyrone. Now, he's, he's quite far down mm. the line of succession. There's people in front of him, but he's still in the line of succession. Now, his father had been murdered, so the English Lord Deputy whisked him away from Ulster, took him inside the Pale, and made him a ward of the state. This mm. little boy's name was Hugh O'Neill. I feel like he's going to be, like, raised to be, like... <laughs> like their perfect lord or something like that what's gonna happen that was a to him? you've got me hooked already piece of <laughs> that was a piece of uh, of uh, insight there naomi yes absolutely <laughs> the english were completely aware of how valuable this little boy was here is an heir mm -hmm. of the o'neill clan the great powerful o'neill clan he was a potential heir to both titles gaelic and english and that means he could have this unrivaled influence over this huge important territory so they arranged for him to be raised with English families inside the Pale. Mm. And exactly like you say, they groom him. They groom him to become a paragon of English loyalty. Okay, and then how do you insert him back in and like make him have the credibility of everybody? How does that work? Well, nobody knows quite yet, but that's definitely the end game. So <laughs> the idea yeah. is at some point, you wait for him to grow up, you're going to help him claim his rightful place as ruler of the O'Neills at some point, And then mm -hmm. the great territory of Chiron will be in English hands. Hugh, as a descendant of the O'Neills, will command respect over the Gaelic natives, and they can use him as a puppet ruler to finally make an incursion into these heartlands, these Gaelic heartlands of Ulster. Okay, and so does it work? Well, you know what? This plan actually seems to go really, really well. Hugh O'Neill okay. grows up to become a perfect Renaissance man. He dresses in English clothes. He's trained in all the elite English customs. He actually becomes a bit of a darling of Queen Elizabeth I, who had taken over okay. control of the crown at this stage. Didn't they do this with, like, a little Indian prince as well? I feel like there was another one. <laughs> anyway, You yeah. know, yeah, that, that, that rings a bell, actually. It's very romantic or something. There's something yeah. very classical about this story. Um, in 1567... Hugh, Hugh was 17 and he was brought to London. He was brought to the royal court and shown off and everyone loves him. Apparently he was very charming. It seems like mm. everyone was a bit charmed by this guy. And he was given the title of Baron Dungannon. So Dungannon is the ancestral capital of the O'Neills. Mm -hmm. And he's sent to Ulster. Finally, he's sent back to Ulster. The fighting has calmed down a little bit. It's safe to claim his seat. 
and he settles down in Dungannon and he becomes this shining representative of English loyalty, English culture, English civilization within Ulster. Mm. And whenever local clans cause trouble in Ulster, Hugh is always there to help the English army to put them down. So he's Handy Hugh. Handy Hugh, yeah. He's their golden boy. Everyone in London loves him. He's the saviour of English rule in Ireland. And by 1585, so he's about 30, 35, he's Mm -hmm. promoted to be the Earl of Tyrone. And that means that he controls the entire of Tyrone, all of his family's ancestral territory. I feel like narratively, this situation can't last. (laughs) I'm building us up to something, yeah. I think that might be quite (laughs) transparent. So... The thing is, the international context had changed quite rapidly after Elizabeth I took the throne. Okay. It was now looking a lot more likely that Protestant England was going to go to war with Catholic Spain. And England had less time than ever to beat around the bush in Ireland. They had to get these Irish clans under control before they Mm. allied with the Spanish. At this stage, Westminster couldn't even trust the old English anymore, which is really interesting because practically all of them are still Catholic and it's been a while now and you just don't know what they're going to get up to. (laughs) So Elizabeth tries a new strategy. She starts to send in whole new teams of Protestant administrators. So if she can't make the old English Protestant, if she can't make the Irish Protestant, she'll send in her own her own Protestants. Yeah. Uh, so we get all these new administrators and military leaders to take control of Ireland all over again, basically. They're the they're the same people like the people that we saw with the woodcurns, the people who were cutting right. roads through the forest. That's them that we're talking about. Right. And most especially their mission is to subdue these Gaelic clans for once and for all. It's Edmund Spencer, fairy queen vibes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so these new settlers, these ones get called the new English. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's it. And a lot of them are also using the opportunity to like make land grabs for themselves. Yeah, these guys are really, really, really bad. Um, it, it did include Edmund Spencer. It, include, it included a lot of kind of the famous courtiers that you hear about in histories mm. about Elizabeth I, uh, some of the big names. But the, I mean, in Ireland, these guys were just bloodthirsty and genocidal. The, I, I'm not using that word lightly, like very much so genocidal. And that was because Elizabeth pretty much gave them carte blanche to do whatever was necessary to take power mm. from the Gaelic clans. So you see this sudden ramping up of violent incursions into Gaelic territory during this period, often involving indiscriminate ma- massacre of civilians, and it was getting worse every day. This is also, by the way, the moment where we see the first plantations being set up on the northeast coast of Ulster, But Mm -hmm. we're going to discuss that in our next episode, so I won't get into it now. Now, importantly for us, these incursions start to touch on O'Neill's huge, big ancestral territory of Tyrone. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth appoints a new provincial president in Ulster called Henry Bagenal, who's in charge of enforcing the will of the crown through martial law in this territory. Mm -hmm. And that involved things like sending new English sheriffs into Tyrone. And, you know, that, you know, Hugh O'Neill is supposed to be the ancestral ruler of this place. It didn't make him happy at all, as you Mm. can imagine. He reacts in all kinds of fascinating ways. One thing he does was actually he eloped with that guy's sister, the new (laughs) new guy who was supposed to take over authority. Just like runs away with his sister, which is kind of hilarious, but we don't have time to talk about that either. (laughs) What a wild story. Like, it's like a really retro tactic. It's like, we shall ally our families and then you can no longer oppose me. That was the idea. Yeah, it was actually that yeah. was like, look, I'm married to your sister now. We can't, you can't actually like get him. <laughs> but of course, yeah, I mean, he was doing it in a, in a different spirit. Now, <laughs> listen, 
this is wild. I'm only telling a fraction of this story because there's just mm. so much going on. Anyway, to make a long story short, during this time, Hugh is making his own calculations. Mm-hmm. And to Hugh O'Neill, it looks like the future direction of travel on this island is probably not very bright for people of Catholic or Gaelic heritage like himself, even people Mm. who were so beloved of of the English authorities. Like, Mm. all around him, Gaelic clans are being slaughtered indiscriminately, including some who had taken English titles. And the new English settlers were, you know, out of control. They were doing Mm. whatever they wanted. And it seemed like they were literally trying to exterminate Gaelic populations from the land that they wanted to seize. And if they set Mm -hmm. their sights on him, you know, it's, it's all over. Yes. So Hugh secretly starts to make alliances with the major Gaelic clans around him, in particular with the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell, which is modern-day Donegal, mm. and the Maguires, who held land ar- around this all-important southern border of Ulster. Did the English find out? Were they suspicious? They did. I mean, some of them did start to smell a rat, but remember, mm-hmm. Hugh was still helping the English army fend off attacks this whole time. He had this really great, really powerful army at his disposal, which the English loved, because whenever they needed help in Ulster, he was sending out this big army to help them to assist the English uh, fighting other battles in, in Ulster. So his loyalty was pretty, you know, he was proving his loyalty all the time to them, it seemed. So they were willing to trust him. Okay. Hmm. Right. Now, this is where things get even wilder. In 1593, these attacks between the English forces and these Gaelic clans basically completely break out into war. Mm. As usual, Hugh O'Neill is there to help the English. For two whole years, he shows up in this war with his army whenever the English need him and help them to fight the clans of Ulster. Mm. He's still their golden boy. But in reality, that whole time, Hugh O'Neill was actually playing both sides of the field. He, as we heard, was actually allied with the clans that he was supposedly fighting against. So he was doing things like telling the Maguire clan to send a small portion of their army to a battle site, but keep the rest of them hidden away. And then O'Neill would like send the English army to go and fight this small contingent and then would win. But then the English would believe that they had defeated the whole Maguire army, not realizing that like 90% of it was waiting for them on the other side of the hill. (laughs) Things like that, right? So essentially, for two years, Hugh O'Neill is fighting a war against the English. All the while, the English thought he was actually fighting a war with the English. <laughs> it, took okay. them, it took them two years to figure this out. Now, eventually, this whole charade begins to fall apart, and the English start to really question, like, what the hell is like Hugh O'Neill up to? Like, this is he's getting a little bit suspicious the way that he's acting. Yeah. But before they even have a chance to put two and two together, word reaches the pale that something completely extraordinary has happened. Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, has left his castle in Dungannon, and he has brought his full retinue of Gaelic clan members with him. They have paraded 10 kilometres north to the ancient Gaelic ritual site on the hill of Tullyhoag. This was the site where all the great Tishi of the O'Neill clan had been inaugurated since ancient times. He had sat down on this great stone, this great throne called the Lac this ancient stone that was used to inaugurate the Tishi of the O'Neills. And mm-hmm. he proclaimed that he was no longer simply the Earl of Tyrone. Now he was the O'Neill Taoiseach <laughs> of Tyrone. And he was going to lead all the clans in Ireland against the crown in an all-out uprising. Oh my god. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so fascinating. <laughs> this, 
why isn't this a film? I know, I know. It is so, so dramatic. This is full-on Daenerys Targaryen unleashing her dragons like this is. It's got so much filmic potential. The irony, the turnaround, the twist, the golden boy gone bad. Listen, (laughs) there's so much more that's going to happen. Seriously, though, it gets even more dramatic than this. So much more dramatic, in fact. But to find out what happens next, you are going to have to tune in to our next episode of the podcast. Yay! Okay, this is going to be such a good series. I could just tell. And listeners, of course, if you want to hear a little bit more, if you don't wait, um, we are going to chat some more about Hugh O'Neill in the debrief, which we're going to be making right after this episode. You can find that bonus episode and loads more extra content, again, by becoming a Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Tim, thank you so much for this first installment of the Conquest series. I'm really delighted that you fell down that rabbit hole. And in mm. the meantime, that's all from me. That's all from me too. Slán, everyone. Slán. <laughs> <laughs>